millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Alongside me this week is Northern pop star and arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Hello, Lucy. Hello. Lucy, did yeah. you know a very fine poet was in an email communication with Thea last week praising the podcast, but complaining that he, he, that's me, mentions cheese too much? Um, did I know that? Yes. I, I I might have heard it around the office. Yes, I was going to make a cheese joke. Go I'm not on. Going to. Okay, oh, no, you've go got to make the cheese okay. joke. Apparently she can and bear it. Yay. <laughs> so this show will now be entirely brie, I mean free, of cheese from now on. But where is Thea? Well, she is, in heavily inverted commas, working from home this week, which is to say playing with her new dog, Alf. But she's on the line to give us a canine update. Thea, hello. Hello, hello. Let me just brush those air quotes out of the way. Yeah. So can, have uh, you been working hard? I have. I've been reading all sorts uh, in between taking Alf out. You've been uh, sending sporadic emails, I've noticed, at the sort of the beginning and the end of the day. To create the illusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very wise. One right at the beginning of the day and yeah. then one yeah, exactly, right yeah. at one the really end. Late oddly early, I thought. But oddly earlier than oddly late is the way to do it. That's because I'm waking up very early. Oh, you, is, it, is it bad? I mean, bless him. He's, he arrived on Friday night at midnight completely discombobulated and a bit of a wreck and he was kind of zonked the first night so we were lured into a false sense of security but uh, he's he's kind of becoming a bit more confident and possibly obsessed with me oh. <laughs> you don't want him to be like not bothered i quite like that if you just yeah, went, oh, surprise <laughs> at night so i have to we have to be really really firm which is so does he hard. oh does he cry when you're not there yeah that's what we're all doing you just, can't you just let him sleep in your room is that not good okay? thinking ros yeah i agree with ros why aren't you doing that Thea? because he's absolutely enormous he is massive oh, right. i've seen a picture i mean he's a big dog <laughs> 22 and a half kilos Whoa. and he's only seven that's old. a quarter of me. That's quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's just slinked straight out of Little Red Riding Hood. He is like an archetypal fairy tale wolf. Brilliant. Oh well, the best God. to keep the wolf on your side, I think. Yeah. Thea, uh, are you back next week? I am. I'm back on Monday. Lovely. We'll hear from you. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 There we go. I'm very jealous. I had a pair with Biscuit waking up in the night. And I used to go and sleep downstairs on the sofa with him so he wouldn't bark loud enough to wake the baby. So the baby was getting up twice a night and then th biscuits started going up and I was sleeping on a sofa with a dog. Yeah. And then we we worked through it. We You know, you have to put him back in this little crate. And Anyway, this is a literary podcast. This is not... <laughs> God's sake. You started. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, coming up on the show this week, uh, Rosalind Deneen is in the studio, our features editor and audio correspondent, who will be telling us about good stuff-ish in the world of pog... Oh, actually not. You've put it down on podcasts this week. Well, it, part, it, no, not all of them. All right, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, and Toby Lichtig, fiction editor and editor of Jewish Studies, is here too, despite still unbelievably being on paternity leave. <laughs> Which has been simply going on forever. You're supposed to be supportive about that. It's gone on for, gone that, on for literally Steve. months. Especially yeah. in public. Thanks oh, yeah. to my very supportive editor, I have, I have been on yeah, God bless you. leave, so there you go. Uh, and you're going to talk through our special issue on Jewish studies. Yes, I am. Lovely. Remember, you should be subscribing to the TLS. Google subscriptions now and join our happy band.
Franz Kafka's literary estate has always been at the centre of controversy. Kafka famously gave instructions to his friend Max Brod to burn all of his papers without reading them. Brod famously ignored him and saw into print all sorts of material that would have been scandalously destroyed. This week, Gabriel Giuseppevici investigates what happened to the estate when Brod died and asks the question, was Kafka primarily a German or a Jewish author? He was, of course, a Czech author. It's another way of looking at it. It begins our section on Jewish studies, which also takes in the question of Jewishness and race, the related savage violence of the 20th century, and then the question of returns of Jewish people to Belarus and Palestinians to their homeland. So there's plenty to talk about with our editor, Toby Lichtig. Toby, hello. Hello. Kafka. Yes. You didn't commission this piece? I recognise that. <laughs> but I've, I've read my Kafka. I was interested in the question, actually. I'd not thought of this before. Um, is he a Jewish author? Is he, is he seen... It, it depends who's answering that question. I mean, I think to Kafka himself, the idea of him being an anything author, you know, allegiance to any group, whether it's um, uh, J- Jewishness or Czechness or Germanness. I mean, he, he famously said, what have I in common with Jews? I have little enough in common with myself. He is an author of... That's a great line. It's a good line. It's, He's yeah. an author of radical alienation. Yeah. You know, so, so, so uh, I mean, yes, you could make arguments that a lot of his, his writing is informed by his Jewishness and that's of alienation and maybe um, Yiddish a, kind of folklore do you uh, think sort of yeah into uh, that? To, to, to a certain extent yes um but 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 in terms of um you know ownership um it, 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 it all depends on, on, on who's claiming and so you know, if you're if you're a library in Germany um then you might you might you might want his papers and you might claim he's German obviously the Israel National Library um is is fairly convinced that he's he's a Jewish author and they, they want his stuff because and of that's it. what's happened hasn't it exactly he yeah. said so Max Brod died he gives it he he Max Brod inherits a lot of Kafka's He inherits papers. a lot of Kafka's stuff. He's, you know, as, as you say, he's supposed to destroy it. He he doesn't. He reads it. He thinks it's it's brilliant. He 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 gets it out there, and we can be very grateful to him for that. And he then then a tremendously convoluted story follows. So Brod ends up um, leaving Central Europe um, uh, and and going to Israel um, as a result of the Holocaust. He then befriends uh, this this woman Esther Hoffer, who becomes his secretary stroke lover. Leaves a very confusing will two wills in fact one of which is incredibly vague about whether this uh, literary material this estate should be dispersed to the israel national archives or whether it actually is offers to you know make use of as she wants to i.e to sell off in chunks to finance her life she then clings on to it there are various legal challenges by the israeli state essentially through the through the guise of the the national library she then has a sort of temerity to live to the age of 101 <laughs> so this goes on for a long time and there's a ruling at some point which says that they are her materials until her death but she can't pass them on and then, then, it then, goes, she, then it becomes the property of the israeli uh, oh, yes except except this was also contested so she dies at age 101 in i think 2007 and bequeaths the papers to her two daughters uh. who were still alive at the time one then dies, one carries on the battle for another decade. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? And then she eventually loses in 2016. And the, the bulk of the papers, there were bits and pieces that were sold. Um, I think a couple of original manuscripts. I think that the, the manuscript for the trial had already been sold on. But um, in the end, in 2016, the, the Israeli National Library managed to acquire the rest of the material. How, how the tempted end. are we to... to, to describe this whole situation as Kafkaesque. Um, not no, not you're, you're not going to I, Lucy. I thought okay. our, our critic uh, Gabriel Josephich did, did a very piece, good thing. He? It's a very, very good piece and yeah. he, he doesn't even pretend, he doesn't go down the route of Kafka's, he just says in a kind of fairly sort of offhand way, it's uh, Shandian as in, you know, Tristram Shandy, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was a very good way of doing it. He says it's Shandian and it's in its chaos and confusion. But it is weird that this guy who was Czech and, and the Czech state is conspicuously absent in this row. It seems to me that he he was. He, I associate. I suppose so, but Kafka I mean, with Prague, don't you? I mean, yeah, he's a Prague you, writer. you do. But he is he is a Prague writer. But I mean, he, I, I, I guess, you know, he wrote in German. I don't think he particularly identified as a Czech person. Yeah. Um, the German claim on him, I find a bit mystifying. He wrote in German, but that that's what people were doing were they in Czechoslovakia at the time. That was more of a sort of seen but, as a literary language, yeah. a bit like Russians yes, who used to write in French. But also Czechoslovakia. I mean, he he, he died in I think was it nineteen twenty four, and Czechoslovakia had only been a state for about six years. So so our, our you know yeah, our, our Hungarian yeah exactly Empire you know person, was, which no so right, so, so the idea of Czechness at that stage. No, he, sure, that was he was Germanic, idea. Yeah. but he wasn't Israeli. I mean, it's, it's a weird no, thing. No, God, no, and actually he 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 sort of abhorred Zionism. So the idea that um you know Israel was gonna 
<laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, he was he was no Zionist. I mean, he, I think he, he he said contradictory things, and he was quite contradictory. But yeah, I mean, in, in the same way that you know any any of those sort of nationalist causes were anathema to him. Yeah, the idea that Israel would claim him as one of his own is, 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 is bizarre as well. It's, it just seems to me like that thing where where we go, oh, English literature, Joyce. Wild, and they, this is not English literature. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can co-opt if it's in the same language, but these these are these are these are people from a different place. And if you are going to be nationalistic about it, which I think is fairly ridiculous thing to do anyway, it's, got to go it's an argument it? for not doing it. Yeah, and yeah, yes, but then and, why and doesn't ar- it go to Boulder or an, the University yeah. of Cardiff? An argument that Israel mean, has put forward, you know, not not um not wrongly is um wait a sec, the the, the Germans were the one that that sort of the, that destroyed his family and, and you know <laughs> tried to kill Brod, and you, so you know why did they get the claim yeah, just because he German, wrote in that language? The German so, claim on it. I mean, the weakest, arguably the weakest one that is based on language rather than anything else. Yeah, and, and Brod is in Israel because of the Holocaust. Exactly, precisely because. So of that. you could say that they, they gave him, you know, they took him in. Yeah, I mean, they yeah, did take yeah, him in. Yeah, they did. They did. As someone who's read this piece. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not as read this piece? As another person yeah. who's read this piece, yeah. I think you need. On behalf of the listeners, oh, yeah. you, yeah. might, you might not have read well it. Done, yes. Well you, done, Ros. You play that role. That's <laughs> yeah. decent of you. What happened to them? Where did they go? The papers. Yeah. Israel national. So the national library right. now okay. has Israel wins. As of, as of, Israel as of, wins. As of, as of Israel 2016, wins. Okay. Israel wins, and not I, the, the the entire estate is not intact because Hoffa did sell off little bits and pieces uh, during her lifetime, but but most of it is now. I mean, there. it's one of the great. It is one of the great. Acts of literary salvage, isn't it? The broad ignoring, oh God, or betrayal, yeah, or betrayal. Well, since you specifically asked him to burn them all. Yeah, but I, well, that's interesting. I, I regard it as an act of saving a person from himself. So, so, so we get the trial, the castle, and America. Exactly. The novel. I mean, the Stoker had appeared as a short story, the beginning yeah. of America, but everything else was we, we would never have had. Yeah. It's like Nabokov asked for his final novel, the original of Laura, to be burnt, and it was ignored. Mm. And I remember reviewing it for the TLS, yeah. and it's not especially good. But we're glad it exists. Uh, but it, glad it's interesting, and you see, and it's been preserved in these amazing handwritten index cards, and you see little flourishes of Nabokov, and it's kind of, you see little nods back to Lolita. Uh, the character, the central character, has a, is very Lolita-like. There is a, a baddie who's humbert humbert like and you get little moments of Nabokov. And, Absolutely, but we, and without Broad Kafka, would have he? I mean, he'd have been almost unknown he'd have been really very even though well, metamorphosis existed well yeah i mean he's i mean yes i'm sure it would have been rediscovered but he, he would have still have been a fairly minor i mean even with all the posthumous stuff there's not actually that much he didn't publish he didn't write an enormous amount he died age 41 he wasn't enormously prolific you know he had a full-time day job and why um, and why has he because actually it's an interesting question that isn't it that kafka is one of the few authors who get an adjective yeah. that's become there's Orwell, there's shakespeare I'm not sure I've Dickensian. met anyone who dislikes his writing. I mean, you know, he's one. He's one of those. Dickensian, maybe, yeah. Dickensian. He's one of those. He's one of those great with a capital G authors of the 20th century. But is it po- seems to? He seems to. But is he liked. respected more? Is he respected more than more than loved? Because if you, I, whenever I've read Kafka, I don't know, I you it. kind of feel that you're in the presence of a shimmering genius, and you once you read Metamorphosis, and God knows what it's like in the German, but when you read it in an English translation. It feels like this extraordinary first time anyone has done a story mm. like that. It feels like it's being sort of considered fresh each time. But do you turn to Kafka for pleasure? Um, it just feels like you, how you can... get your pleasures. I mean, yeah. I've, 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 I've I like reading... stories. I like stories about people becoming Beatles. Insects, yeah. yeah, I feel that he's so singular and brilliant this very day, and that what he has to say still seems. It's because he's so be weird, so... isn't it? That like, if you read the trial, it is so. Um, strikingly, bafflingly odd and just pitched slightly askew yeah. that it, it lingers in the mind. I mean, he's responsible for a lot of bad imitation, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he arguably ruined Kurtzia. <laughs> because, so? well, no, I... I... You, could say that you can't hold that against people. So well, no, Proust well, and Joyce and all those people responsible for a lot of, and Beckett, a lot of terrible imitations. Well, yeah, but it's, it's striking but that a lot of those, you again, are great with a capital G, but I don't know how many, I mean, no one reads Beckett novels for pleasure. I would but it argue. depends what you mean by pleasure. You don't. You might not read it for relaxation, but you might read it because it's yeah. a wonderful, kind of amazing, weird. I mean, I've read the trilogy. Have you read the trilogy? Thing. I have read the trilogy. I read it. I read it during university, and I, I did find. I mean, pleasure. I, I, I found it incredibly stimulating. Have I turned to it again in recent years? No. No. 
Would I recommend it? Yes, it's fascinating. I, I mean, yeah. Kafka I reread, though. I mean, I have actually reread Kafka. I don't think I will reread the trilogy in the next... No, I just think when I read like Bad Kurtzia, which is a large chunk of Kurtzia, there's a kind of that sort of self-conscious strangeness that... Because he, uh, he wrote The Life and Times of Joseph K, didn't he? Is that Kurtzia? Something Joseph K? Um, it's an early one. Yes, I think so. I but anyway, there's an influence. There's an but don't, influence. You know, don't blame the imitators. Yeah. I think he was, he was the original. Yeah, fine. We need to keep going because there's a large chunk of this, Toby, which you have helmed into the paper despite not being here ever. Um, <laughs> I will be soon. Will be soon. Are I more? Yes. It's two books on the Middle Ages, and I, you, we're none of us historians, but I am struck by there was a pog, famous pogrom in the sort of medieval period. Pogroms against yes, the Jews. Pog- they were pogroms. expelled in the 13th century. They were expelled in the 13th century. Um, we never really seem to bear the shame of that, do we? Not really, no. I, I certainly wasn't really taught about Jewish persecution in this country at school. I think a few of us know that Oliver Cromwell welcomed back the Jews, and I'm saying that in inverted commas because that's actually a complex thing and he didn't really welcome them back with open arms. But very few people actually know that they were put they were sort of expelled in the first place and who it was and some of them were killed weren't they it wasn't just it wasn't just expelled the whole blood libel thing came to this country yeah there's an argument that medieval blood libel started in this country it started in norwich in the 12th century um and a lot of the persecution tied in with the crusades so lots of anti-jewish sentiment during the crusades and also extortion so um uh crusades were financed by you know it was a small jewish population we only took about three or four thousand people but there was a lot of extortion and yes, I don't really think it's talked about. One of the uh, the other books is saying that this sort of creation of race and identity was created around the same time, around the time of the Crusades. Absolutely. Because the Crusades were incredibly yep. influential and also in, it's sort of dividing people up. And defining, an, yeah. defining another, though, is a Defining another, so, so... Exactly, so you go, you're, you know, you're um, Jews, or, or rather they're all Saracens. They're yeah. all Saracens, so yes, exactly. All, all Muslims are Saracens, yeah. even though there are, you know, there are Berbers, there are, you know, Muslims in what's now Turkey, you know, completely different and sorts they weren't of defined cultures. like that before yeah, but exactly. then so it's kind of it's you know it was the christians against the pagans which were the jews the saracens yeah and the arg- else and they started dividing people up also by color i think that isn't that yeah. what the book the book yeah. is saying yeah exactly and the argument that it's it, it's no surprise really that that, that there's it's exactly at this time that persecution of the jews really steps mm. up and i think i think there's a line england led the way another proud moment of our history which is interesting because history in our schools maybe it's overcompensated for now I don't know but there's there's large there's large chunks isn't there of you know I never learned about the Indian mutiny until I read a Flashman book you know I didn't know anything about um, the Boer War concentration camps until I read something when I was 30 Mm. 25 the expulsion of the Jews I think I read about in a historical novel yeah there's a whole chunks of the, the formation of the British state and then the empire that, that you don't really because you, you do Tudors and then you kind of do the now, first and second I think you get a bit of it now I think you get a bit of 20th century empire imperial now. shame and yeah. 19th century imperial shame yeah. not enough in my opinion but yeah really? I, think I think you're think right about yeah. you're right about earlier in history you don't think that's enough now no not really I mean I don't know I haven't I haven't actually been to school for a while but from what I gather we'll see with our kids won't we yeah absolutely whether they ever get because you know, it's still they're all they're all like, oh, your kids are older. What have they done? They do, Lucy? they do, they do hear. That's what I'm saying about the the other side of empire, as it were. It's not at all all glorious. Yeah, um, I'm not sure it was even glory when I was. It just wasn't really done. It was you do Tudors and you do First and Second World no, War. No, they do. They they're doing much more. And than you did the now. Industrial Revolution, but that was all about children in mines. It wasn't about yeah. then leading no, to they've, colonialism. They've learned a bit about um, what, I think what happened to the Indians. I think uh, under the empire, yeah. it's not you know as I say, it's not just that we came in and you know wasn't wasn't England wonderful, and they learn much more about slavery and abolition of slavery. Yeah. They're much more clued up about that. The earlier stuff, I think not. Hmm. I haven't you know they do a bit of Cromwell because they always do Cromwell because that's a good you know that's a kind of there's a lot to get your teeth into around there. But they but they very I don't I don't think they've done sort of the Crusades. At all? No, you get actually. a bit of a, a, a bit, bit of a bit of conqueror and all the rest yeah. of it. But. Well, that's that's about level. yeah. That's that yeah. Um, uh, But yeah. this question of historiography is interesting because it comes out in this really throughout the issue, Toby, which is the idea of the lacrimose view of Jewish history. Yes. it's a historian called Salo Whitmayer Baron has coined the term, I think, potentially. Yeah, um, and he. His family was murdered in the Holocaust. Yeah, so he he was he first used the term I, I believe in this is this influential paper once he'd 
come to New York um, in the 20s. So this was bef well before the Holocaust. But obviously there'd been a, an ignoble history of persecution to draw on then. And his, his point was too much in, in, in Jewish history and historiography is made of persecution. Actually, it was about what was happening between the pogroms that's, that's of the most interest. Um, I think there's, a, there's a, um, a line, you know, Jews were thinking, writing, selling, buying, building. You know, they weren't always being beaten up. And it's a fair point, isn't it? And it's a fair point. Mm. And then the Holocaust happened and his whole family were killed. Um, and he sort of stuck by his guns <laughs> to, yeah. to a kind of quite admirable extent and said, well, yes, you know, this happened. However, it's a long history. And, and, and in the and sense that let's not only be defined by absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. I think he, he, he didn't use his phrase, but it's essentially the cult of victimhood. He, you know, he didn't like the idea that, 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 that Judaism was all about a cult of victimhood. But we do it. I mean, the paper, I mean, Michael Stanislavski has written a really great piece on five different books with the word pogrom in the title. Yep. Or four books. Yeah, a, yeah. a, a lot of them. And we do it all the time. We do Second World War. You know, how much of Second World War studies then goes to to the Holocaust? And legitimately so, because you don't want to forget. So it. it's, it's it's about balance, isn't it? And there's a there's a funny phrase about um, all Jewish festivals. You know, dating back three four thousand years, they tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat, which which <laughs> which I think kind of encapsulates it quite well, both in terms of the the, the humour, but also the this is you know this is why this is why we're having this festival. I often wonder what will happen to our remembrance of the Holocaust many, many centuries hence, assuming we haven't all been wiped out by climate change, sort of five, six, seven hundred years on, is it going to become another festival in the same way that lots of other Jewish festivals are there to say, hey, we got through it, let's eat? Um, it sounds like a bit of a, an awkward question to ask now, but it's... Do you think it, that might happen? Well, I, I don't know. It's very it's interesting to think of, isn't it? Because, well, the know, 12th century pogroms are not even thought about at all. No, This is a much not. greater scale. But, I mean, yeah, much greater but scale. His, but history does... I mean, most, most, most of the ones, uh, most of the, the, the major festivals, you know, Purim is coming up, and I can't remember exactly which siege that was, but that was, you know, it's a, it's a tremendously exuberant festival in which particularly members of the Hasidic faith get absolutely hammered and it's sort of a version of carnival. But actually, it's to commemorate a near slaughter in which a few people got out. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly going to happen to the Holocaust 500 years, a thousand years hence, but it's interesting to think about how much persecution and the idea of victimhood is bound up in, in Jewish history. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm sort of with Baron that it's, we definitely shouldn't take the lachrymose view, but at the same time, that idea of survival through oppression is kind of integral to the, the faith aspect as much and always has and, uh, and always know, has been yeah, yeah. For, for the for bible millennia. the first books of the bible were written in exile in yeah. babylon weren't they exactly exactly there's lots more we could talk about but i think we're gonna have to move on toby you're gonna stick around because you've been writing in the paper despite not being here very much yes so we're gonna come that. back to arthur miller and you shortly great but today's podcast i need to tell you is brought to you in association with harvard university press specifically a book which is about this. In October 1773, after a gruelling trek from Paris, Denis Diderot, Lucy, is that right? Diderot? Mm, yeah, yeah, well done. Stumbled from a carriage in St. Petersburg. The century's most subversive thinker, Diderot, arrived as the guest of its most ambitious and admired ruler, Empress Catherine of Russia. What followed was unprecedented. More than 40 private meetings stretching over nearly four months between these two extraordinary figures. Diderot had come from Paris in order to guide, or so he thought, the woman who had become the continent's last great hope for an enlightened ruler. But as it soon became clear, Catherine had a very different understanding, not just of her role, but of his as well. Philosophers, she claimed, had the luxury of writing on unfeeling paper. Rulers had the task of writing on human skin, sensitive to the slightest touch. Diderot and Catherine's series of meetings captured the imagination of their contemporaries. And there's a book about it. Catherine and Diderot, The Empress, The Philosopher and The Fate of the Enlightenment, out now and published by Harvard University Press. Robert Zaretsky traces the lives of these two remarkable figures, inviting us to reflect on the fraught relationship between politics and philosophy and between a man of thought and a woman of action. Listeners of this podcast can order a copy of Catherine and Diderot at the special price of £15. That's £5 off, plus postage and packaging, by emailing info at harvardup.co.uk quoting TLS podcast that's info at harvardup.co.uk Lucy you know all about Diderot I know very say. little about Diderot but he's good fun he's good fun he did the uh, encyclopedia and he kind of sort of ushered in the enlightenment she said broadly didn't he <laughs> done kind of as long as with this you must never forget the Scottish people yeah, the Scot Scots, Scottish yeah. people did and the enlightenment and Diderot yeah they're all pretty cool it sounds to me that you need to read this book though to, to maybe fill out, to fill out to fill out some of the knowledge 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Those of you who pay close attention to the TLS, which I'm assuming is absolutely everyone. Including you, Lucy. Including, well, of course, me. will be familiar. Constantly reading the TLS. <laughs> And Ros, I don't feel Ros reads the TLS very much either. Can I get even nine words into my introduction <laughs> so or not? make most of it. Lucy, your colleagues will hear that and they'll feel completely... Un- we all make, we all make... A, we do. A, a, there's not that many of us, there's no. a lot of it. So yeah. we do, yeah. And those of, those of us who do make it up and everyone else who is very familiar with it... Mm. We'll also be particularly familiar with the audiovisual page, Indeed. which is our monthly roundup of listening and watching. This week, Ros Denine talks about hearing women's true voices, whether through myth, antiquity or true crime. Ros, thank you for coming to talk to us. And if, you, if, you can, if you can get a word in edgeways, that is. I cannot, I cannot stress how much I read the TLS. Don't rise to I it. Probably don't read Toby, it. We're not producing it. She's, yeah. she's reading it. Toby, have you been reading it on your potential? I have. I've been having it. It's been sent to me every week, yeah. and I've read literally most of it. <laughs> I have. Yeah. We people, people worry about not reading all of it. You don't have to read all of it. You've You're the to, one yeah. who worries us about us. Well, no, not you need to read all of it. It's your job. It's, it's not my job to read. Anyway, I don't think we should be doing this no. on air. <laughs> yeah. So, Roz. Um, <laughs> Hi. You start with, it has to be said, a rather distressing sounding podcast, yeah. which is in the line of the true crime kind of category called The Last Days of August. Can you tell us about it? Sure. So The Last Days of August is um, a podcast by John Ronson. So he's become quite famous now. He's a best-selling author. Mm. He wrote that book about psychopath, The Psychopath Test. He wrote a book about online bully- bullying, and he's done another podcast series, which he's is called. Ma- the- he's massive, isn't he? Really, he's a b- really big deal. Yeah, yeah. He can turn into a film, the psychopath. One, yeah, so yeah. the man who stares at goats. Yeah. Yes, George Clooney. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And he sort of started by just doing. He was on, you know, a couple of years ago on um, This American Life, doing the odd, really interesting investigative story. Um, he's done one podcast series before, which was called The Butterfly Effect, which looked at how the porn industry became kind of a big kind of technological industry, basically, mm-hmm. the tech takeover of porn. So he did that. And uh, and then and now this new podcast comes out called The Last Days of August. And I think, yeah, that's that's right up, you know, right on my street. John Ronson, brilliant, brilliant stuff he's done. It's really disturbing. It's about um, a porn star called August Ames, who committed suicide when she was 23 and it was right after there'd been a sort of Twitter storm. So she did a tweet saying that she wasn't going to do a job, a sex scene, because the person she was going to do it with was a crossover performer, which means that they sometimes are filmed having sex with men and sometimes with women. And she said she didn't want to do that. Mm. There was a big, big Twitter pile on about that. Look, she got so much abuse because everyone said, you're being homophobic. Yeah. Her husband said she just doesn't want to sleep with people who she thinks might not fancy her, which is... There's a lot of layers in this story. There's a lot of layers, yeah. We're not going to get to the bottom of this. Anyway, she killed herself. John Watson goes along and interviews everyone who's around her, everyone who's in in that world. 
I mean, it's a kind of investigation, isn't it? And, and talking to people. But I think in your piece, you 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 th- seem to think that there are some fundamental questions and assumptions mm. about the porn industry and the way we talk about it, and 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 also the validity of some of the true crime podcasts, and that these things are being un- a bit unchallenged. They are being kind of accepted. Is that sure. right? Sure. So so just so if you take even even if you just take the porn bit out of it for a minute, there there are so many true crime podcasts now. There are dozens more every week. There's sort of websites dedicated to how you navigate your true crime listening, and you think. What are people going for here? People love it. What are they there for? They've always loved it, though. They've always loved it, exactly. But there's something... No one is really acknowledging the thing that, like, it starts with a dead body. It's often a woman. You often go into her sexual history. It's, it's, It's... There's something about it that's really sort of titillating to people. But it's not sold as titillating. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly. Not, it's sold exactly. As, yeah. It's sold as sort of... Oh, it's kind of reading Playboy sort of, for the articles type thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so in this, it's like... that. One of the things that Ronson does acknowledge, I don't think, enough in this, is that are people coming to this podcast because they're interested in mental health issues, which are on display but unexplored throughout... You know, are they interested in that? Are they interested in sadness? Are they interested in how an industry works? Or are they interested in did the porn aspect hook them? Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Well, the, These are all beautiful all people who have it's sex and death, isn't it? It's sex and death, and that's and that's and that's as you say, it's the story as old as time. We're always interested in it. It's not acknowledged enough in this. And but do you think because it, it kind of gets a pass because it's it's people with very fine liberal values? You know, John Ronson is a Guardian journalist exactly. originally, uh, and therefore almost a above or beyond reproach yeah uh, and therefore it's not accused of a sort of smuttiness because the form itself is is seen as somehow elevated the idea of a um, this american lifestyle podcast comes exactly. with a sort of cachet doesn't it now yeah exactly it's like you we can go and look at and investigate anything mm. um yeah. because we're doing it for the right reasons mm. you might be but that not might not be why people are coming to listen to it and we just happen to have chosen porn again well exactly. and that's the other thing the other thing is you know would would there be so many listeners if it was about the car industry or estate agents or, or estate agents actually it's a really good podcast about okay. the car industry. So anyway but um, also the, 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 the separate yeah. point mm. about the true crime thing is is that as you say it's just it, it's a you have to be responsible about it. You have yeah. to be thorough. You have to be... If you're going to open up a case, which really means an awful lot to some people, couldn't yeah. mean more, couldn't be more important. And in this, John Ronson's really, really sensitive about the people he's interviewing. So he's interviewing this guy, Kevin, who's a porn producer, whose young wife has killed herself. But then there are lots of allegations against him, and John Ronson's really careful about confronting this grieving man. But he's almost... He's too careful, I think... There's not enough exploration. But at least maybe, I mean, in his defence, he would say he's showing restraint and responsibility because he's a proper... He's, you know, maybe Absolutely. he would say he's, he's a responsible journalist doing it. Absolutely. But unfortunately, because and maybe, unfortunately, what happens then is that all the people just get to present the masks with which they cope. And so then it all feels quite surface. Right, yeah. you know, mm. and 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 there is still the question about why is this particular story being gone into in such depth and in yeah. so many ways. Yeah, um, and the kind of horrible uh, uh, Twitter idea of the pylon goes throughout your piece, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and how <laughs> tell us? Can you in a in a seamless segue? How does that relate to the goddess Athena and the story of Arachne? On the mythology po- podcast, um, Vanessa Richardson presents you know great myths and stories they're kind of they're dramatized the different actors come in and tell a bit and then but but what's actually quite interesting about it is they give this really good commentary and analysis of it one of the episodes that i was listening to uh they've taken the myth of athena and arachne when athena and arachne had this weaving competition basically because arachne came along and said i'm the best weaver in the world but she's immortal and yeah. athena says hence arachnid and spiders Yes, she, Athena she turns, turns her, her into a spider. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Well, not lovely for her. No. So, so anyway, Athena. So Arachne sort of seemingly wins this competition, and Athena goes absolutely crazy. And the way it's described in this in this dramatization is that she's not really just angry at Arachne for beating her. She's angry at everyone. So, so she's angry at Zeus, her father, for making her stand naked in front of a man, for conceiving her with just a thought and no mother. She's angry with herself for killing Pallas, who was her friend, for failing again and again to be the woman she wanted to be, even as she hit Arachne until every inch of her skin was red. So she she goes mental. She really, as you'd say, pile on, piles on to Arachne. Arachne then kills herself. 
and Athena feels that it's very much her fault because there's there's a direct thing. Um, it's interesting that that idea of a pylon with the idea of the Twitter pylon in the last days of August. It's interesting this idea that people doing it are angry, not really at the person they're attacking. They're angry mm. for met for lots of they're angry at themselves. They're angry for lots of other things, and they're just using this this one little moment where they can. Pr- put pressure and make an impact so the channel's been and opened it and lets out lets out the yeah. rage is this good though i mean how close is this to the any number of attempts to repopularize greek myths in a sort of hackneyed way which exists you know anytime someone wants to churn out a book then let's retell the stories of the greek myths yeah what's interesting about it actually because when i start listening to it it does sound a little bit made for school or something it, it does kind of hook you because they're not actually trying to repopularize it they're not trying to be um, I don't know, exciting or anything like that. They're just going, these are actually brilliant stories about how, why humans do what they do. And they're removed from the contemporary pain of individuals who are suffering, which is what you get in the last days of August. They're removed from all that. So we can actually look in a much bigger picture about why we feel as we feel, why we do as we do, why in this particular story, why Athena feels that there's a massive difference between who she, who she was and who she wanted to be. Um, so it's worth it? I think it's worth it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you weren't very taken with the idea of it, were you? Just, I, I just, w- I, I, wait till we move on to the next yeah, one. Yeah, the next like one I'm not taken with more. at all. But no, I, I, I'm, I'm not I'm sure I'm ready for it. No, I'm, I'm up for it. I'm just, I just think it's interesting that it just seems easy to me to retell the Greek myths again. It depends how you do it. If depends you, if you bring yeah, something true. new and interesting yeah, to yeah, it, right, then sure. I think that's fine. Oh, shut up. Um, also, uh, a channel for untapped rage, Stig. Uh, your final um, <laughs> podcast that you talk about, Roz, is Goop. Mm. Um, and I know that you thought long and hard before you wrote about this uh, particular one. Why Why was that then? She asked innocently. Because I didn't want to have to sit here and defend Goop. What is I Goop? I love is... Goop. So Goop is... Um, Do you know what Goop is, Toby? I know what Goop is. Yeah. Goop, no, Toby knows what Goop is because Toby sits next to me in the office. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Goop a lot. Uh, well, uh, enough. More than I, I think, enough. I think even without Roz, I knew what Goop was. Yeah. So it's a, it's a website originally conceived by Gwyneth Paltrow. Mostly, mostly because it's um, it's it's, it's um, taken the mick out of in the papers so much. I mean, you know, Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow is a bit of a figure of fun, isn't she? Well, that's what. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's what did you say? It's a website set up by Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. It's a media empire worth two hundred fifty million dollars. Really? Two hundred fifty million. Yeah. That she began. Yeah. With a laptop at her kitchen table. So we should accord it more respect? Um, I mean, I think lots of people do now because it's making so much money. The problem is there have been... there are It's, it's, it's massively parodied. It's, it's But it also peddles snake oil to vulnerable people. I don't think that's true, though. Well, lots of scientists say it's yeah, true. Yeah, uh, it has said some pretty dodgy things it's in said the past some... about health cures and things like right, that. Yeah, right, yeah, the, the but, but jade said... eggs and... For, so uh... the jade egg thing, Yeah, I actually got this. So jade eggs, they still sell them. They were never... I these are jade. Egg, these are vaginal jade eggs sold. Yeah, for, but they made but claims the that is, were not true. So, so, so the thing about jade eggs is you can get a plastic version of the NHS to to um, strengthen your pelvic floor muscles, and they've been used for yes, a long not, time. Yeah, as yeah a, but it's not. It's not that. It's the fact that they said that they would do all sorts of other things. They said it? that they would cultivate sexual energy and clear chi pathways in the body and intensify femininity yeah. and invigorate all so life. That, that cannot be a fact. Intensify <laughs> okay, so femininity. Not, so I'm sorry. Not, that yeah. cannot that's, be a verifiable that's claim. That's not a fact. That's fine. Yeah. But that's a... I'm just interested because this week... Because I was thinking, am I being... I think it's really worth exploring whether... What, is cynicism attached because she's famous and mm. rich and um, how much is it to do with she's a woman? I think there's legitimate questions. They've just done a deal group with Netflix to do a regular science show. And the coverage of it in mainstream media, mainstream liberal media, mm-hmm. the Daily Beast, The Guardian, things like that, is scientists across the board are saying we are deeply worried that Netflix are legitimising what amounts to hippie musings into the realm of science. Now, this could be because scientists are annoyed that she's making lots of money in an area mm-hmm. which they previously were making lots of money. I concede that. But if you look at the coverage of Netflix, there's a deal with Gwyneth Paltrow to make a show. It's not how interesting that is. It's, oh, my God, a snake oil salesman is being given yet another legitimised platform. But surely you need to wait and see what the programme is. That's a fair point. I mean, surely well. you can't. Perhaps you'll, perhaps you'll have lots of incredibly rigorous scientists on it. Well, that would be relatively new development considering what has gone on that's not true actually so 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 this is so this is what we were talking about in the podcast so i talk about the podcast in the group podcast this piece because our very own mary beard appears 
in it and it's talking about women to Gwyneth like Paltrow voice. Uh, no Gwyneth Paltrow rarely does the interviews she has yeah. um, uh, she's called Elise Lonan yeah. so Mary Beard appears on it and talks fantastically about Twitter trolls about pylons about you know lots of stuff that's in her Women and Power book Mary Beard's not the only person with these credentials to appear on the Goop podcast and to and often these people write on the site as well. Gwyneth Paltrow has access to all of the, like these fantastic psychotherapists and relationship counsellors and nutritionists and lots of, they're all, lots of them mostly very qualified people and they so come on and they talk ma- about... Has sorry. it matured in recent years then, do you think? I mean, Possibly. The things that we, that it's sort of, the, the things that we used to ridicule about, are they actually things from quite a long time ago and since it's grown, has it? Possibly. So I think, as we were talking yesterday, I think the net, the net, the, it's, the net gain is good. Yeah. They all of that she they 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 produce a lot of content about how to be how to make your life better without spending money, how to improve your relationships, how to improve your sense of self, how to they they explore all of these ideas, they give it away for free. But there is an anti. I mean, and I take that point. And you can argue that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of content here, of which a relatively small proportion might be exactly. controversial yeah. as well. Yeah. There is a whiff of anti-science about all of this, and they sponsored last year a panel which is very heavily anti-vax. Did they? Right. Um, and there is a combination of believe certain mystical powers will help you and the anti-vax mm. movement. And the anti-vaccination movement is one of the most threatening uh, yeah, public as, health as movements. As I'm not saying Gwyneth Paltrow espouses that, or yeah. even people who write on the site in majority but I think the nature of a site like this pitched at a level which isn't always solely scientific some of it is based on a sort of system of belief some of it's based on a sort of holistic approach which carries with it things which are not necessarily fully scientifically underpinned that can bring in a lot of fellow travellers who are anti-scientific or there's a difference though isn't there because there's though as you say if there's a lot of, uh, of beneficial stuff about uh, relationships and counselors and all of that and that's not that's neither scientific nor unscientific that's a wealth of experience and uh, sort of practice mm. which can be incredibly valuable and that's but that's not something you test in a lab mm. anyway but there's a world of difference I think between I mean you could totally believe all of that and still be completely uh, on board with vaccination, you can't. But you can yeah. see that's not the. It's not. But the you can same. see how the two can bleed. In, in, yeah, in, in, and I'm surprised actually that they officially aligned themselves with anti-vaxxers because that's a different. And they would say that they officially that they, they gave a platform an anti-vaxxer. That's what they often say. Yeah, that's what they often say. I mean, I think I think a lot of the things that prove quite controversial come out of this kind of frustration. Um, about who about lots of there are lots of female stories on Goop where they feel they've gone to a professional to a doctor or something and their concerns have been dismissed yeah. as female yeah. and as and is Gwyneth Paltrow getting it in the neck so much because partially because she's a woman? I would I would absolutely say yes yeah. to that. Yeah. So there is a there is a point here that it. it they're like we're going to try. We're going to try and find a different answer. A different but you answer. You can't find a different and answer to, to you can't, vaccination. And sure, you can't you find a different answer to vaccination. Answer. But that I think I think they'd argue that this is they're trying to explore um, uh, just a different structure okay. to answer yeah. some problems but and you, to feel not being dismissed. I think all children should be vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have to move on because we're going to talk yes. to Toby while he's here about Arthur Miller. Yes, we are. So um, we're going to silence Roz's woman's true voice. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Roz. Enough of you, Roz. Thank you very much. No, we're getting our money's got worth. To talk about jade eggs on the TNS podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen for the extended edition in which we talk about it for hours. Yeah. Um, no, that's not true. Don't look for that. Um, we're now going to get our money's worth out of Toby, who's coming back again because he, he never also, left. No. He never left. He never left. <laughs> Didn't he? No. That's not my i just like to say thank you very much to Roz for, for, for working overtime to make everything so brilliant over the past few months. So Come on, we've got to, we, we're running out of time. Let's talk about Arthur um, Miller. Toby um, has been talking about two new productions of Arthur Miller plays. So, um, Toby, uh, why is it Arthur Miller time in London? Uh, uh, the line that I thought. What, that, was what, different, that was a deliberate Miller time yeah, joke. Yeah, 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 Miller time. Yeah. Very good. Um, well, it, it is Arthur Miller time because there are five separate productions of his plays, five different plays appearing over the next five months, which is, you know, uh, it's 
peculiar? Is it just a coincidence? I don't know. They're not all at the same theatre. There are two at the Old Vic and one at the Young Vic. But they're not, you know, it's not a kind of coordinated season. Why more sort of generally, Mm. thematically? I guess he is, he's left wing. Um, We understand his politics. A lot of his um, worldview is shaped by his early years um, uh, as a boy growing up during the Depression, which um, which ruined his his sort of middle class comfort in his his middle class comforts. So a lot of his theatre deals with the kind of consequences of financial implosion and ten years on from the financial crisis that we're Mm. still dealing with the political and social and familial problems caused by that um so his his theater you know has clear parallels to today and there's also the kind of the the influence of um his experience as as a uh a mccarthyite witch being hunted um so his um He's he's both and anti anti business, um, but he's also you know anti big business. I should say not small business, anti big business, and kind of sceptical of capitalism. But he's also sceptical of, of state and the big mm. state. And again, of course, that plays into contemporary the intrusive fears. State. Yeah. And what state. it is to be American. I yeah. mean, that's the other thing. You read, watch death or read or watch Death of a Salesman. It kind of goes to the heart of Americanness. Absolutely, and that's, and that's a Trumpian. Yeah, notion. completely, and and oh, the idea of entrepreneurism yeah. and individual, yeah. the individual versus the state. I mean, you know, these are perennial themes, obviously, but today in particular, they seem to have mm. a special resonance. And you know, the, his his big plays, Death of a Salesman, The Crucible, that you know, they're studied in schools. They've they've they have been for forty years. Um, they're all they're often revived, but it, it's actually noticeable that, that there are also along with these. Uh, View from the Bridge is another one. Um, there are two more minor productions, and these are the ones that I've reviewed. Um, but they're they're the ones that are av- available to go and see now. Mm, um, and what? Um, so it's the American Clock, which the is American on the Clock, old Vic. Yeah, which is the Young Vic. Sorry, the Old Vic. And the Price, which is on at Wyndham. Wyndham. Yeah, and that was actually that was originally um, started in Bath, and so it's it's a, a, on a West End transfer now. And it seemed to me that one of them you thought was perhaps lesser known for quite good reasons, and the other the other one not so much. Yes, is that I, right? I would say that. So the American Clock um, it first uh, premiered on Broadway in the early eighties. It was a complete flop. I think only about twelve performances of it ran. It's crazy considering how big. Exactly, Miller you know, this is the early eighties. Miller was a you know a towering figure by then. Um, he, they went through various versions, and then about four or five years later, there was a national theatre version which incorporated lots of the previous elements, but in, this version had plenty of music and dance as well. And it wasn't brilliantly received. We reviewed it as well. Fonseca reviewed it for us, and she basically thought it was a bit of a. Um, a disaster. Um, there's a good line from her about how basically the, the the singing and the dancing ruin it, ruin the ten- ruin the tension of the piece. I think she said, um, and I can see why she thought that because um, this is a, a, a new production. Um, it's just not a very good play. It's incredibly fragmented. I'll very very. I won't give you the whole price of it, but it's basically it's about the depression. It has 50 different characters. Um, there's, a, there's a central narrator, there's a central family, the Baum family, based loosely on Miller's own family, and it's, sort of, it's about what happened to them during the Wall Street crash and in the t- decade that followed. But there are millions of different, different things that go on. It's basically a, a series of vignettes. There's very little narrative that isn't purely chronological. I mean, you know, other than that one thing happens after another, we don't really have any sense of emotional development. He was a great experimentalist, really, for all yeah, this, for yeah, all this yeah, kind yeah. of... He it, talks about what it is to be American. Yeah, absolutely. Theatrically, he was... He, wasn't, he, was, he, he was anti-avant-garde, but he was an experimentalist, mm. and this is quite experimental. And it's just, it's just not a very good play. It's quite didactic. We don't really... You know, but it's, I said in my piece, it's didactic, but the story, the story we're told is familiar. Mm. It's, you know, so it's er, anyone who knows anything about the Depression will, will come away from this knowing no more. Mm. Um, so, I, to me, the, the, the only reason I can see that it was staged was that it seems to play into such contemporary concerns about what happens to a culture uh, and a political culture and a more sort of on the smaller scale of family culture when we lose belief in the system in the financial system and you know sort of the, the decade yeah. that follows but it's just it's not a good play and it's not done well I must say so so much effort has gone into this production the acting's pretty good the 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 you know the, the sort of the music and dance are good but the way it's been handled um it's been triple cost so the, the Baum family instead of just uh, one set of players playing it it's, it's it's been triple cost so that it it evolves from being a jewish family into a south asian family and then finally into an african-american family and you can see why they've done this because it, it's it, you know they're they're an everyman family and so it makes it much more representative but it's confusing enough without them doing that and it just for me it just doesn't work how about the price? Better. Good. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for joining us. <laughs>
much better. It's not a it's not a flawless play by any means, but it's a much smaller one. Very little happens. Again, I won't give you a long prosy, but it's basically about these two brothers and 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 the, the inheritance from their father and what happened to him. Um, the father basically again. He was, a, he was a bit like Arthur Miller's father. He was broken by the Depression. One brother stays at home and looks after him. The other goes off and is successful, and it's about the tension between the two brothers. And and then you've got this other character, um, uh, Solomon, uh, who's played by David Suchet, who's brilliant in it. And he's this kind of, sort of uh, ageing, elderly, actually, 89-year-old um, Jewish, sort of Yiddish-inflected furniture dealer. And he's there to kind of deal with the estate, and he brings a lot of humour, but he also breaks up the... Or, breaks up the tension between the two brothers and, and, and is a kind of interesting counterpoint. The problem with this player is he's the heart of it and he disappears for most of the second act and there's not much you can mm. do with that as a, as a director. And just to tie it back to the beginning, I suppose, Toby, he's funny because he's Yiddish and well, he's Yiddish because he's funny. A bit, yeah. So I, I, I sort of say in the, in, in the piece, just as an aside, what, what, is, what, what is it already? What is it? Why, why, I mean, there we go. What, why is... Yiddish and especially stage Yiddish and Yiddish inflection inherently comic or, 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 or it all seems inherently comic what is it about it I, I reviewed earlier last year the, the, the Lehman trilogy mm. of, um, um, quite a long play about yeah, with Lucy I think yeah mm. and it was about you know that was about um, well, that was about 150 the, about years of financial, financial fallout and there was yeah. quite a bit of Yiddish in it and every time yeah. someone said something slightly back to front in a Yiddish way everyone laughed they were the sort and of and funny charming bits they were the funny yeah. charming bits and what is it about that well I suppose it, the problem is not is not that it's funny and charming but it, if that's all it is if, that's all if you it can't is. say anything serious or tragic or difficult or challenging exactly. with that kind of inflection is why is it only seen as a kind of yeah, absolutely. Well, and particularly these days when Yiddish is actually as a spoken language is massively on the rise. I think, you know, I think we probably need to rethink our understanding of Yiddish. Well, mm. that might be the subject of another piece in another podcast. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, that's all we've got time for. We've crammed too much in. Thanks to uh, Ros the Deed and Toby Lishtig. We should probably thank Thea for bothering to answer her phone. Do you think? Yes. Yes. Thanks, Alf, as well. Thank you, Alf, if he exists. It's a good way of getting a week off work. Isn't it? I'm sure that's not what she did. I might try that. I'm going to get a dog. (laughs) I'm only coming back at the end of this week. It's time (laughs) to get a dog. I've had a child. Let's have a dog. Let's have a dog. Uh, Next week, then, Thea is supposed to be working from work. So we'll see if she's here. We'll be talking flamboyantly in and about French. So I particularly look forward to that. You could do it better than me, Lucy. No, I'm sure I couldn't, but I'll be sorry not to be here. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Maybe Thea won't be back. I'm sure she will. will. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.